Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for our guests here in-house, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will post today's program on our Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Leading our discussion is Emily Gao. Ms. Gao is director of our Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. She is an attorney who has defended religious freedom for the last 14 years. She has worked on behalf of victims of religious freedom violations in East Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and South Asia, at the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom and Beckett Law. Previously, she worked at the United Nations and also at the law firm of Latham and Watkins. She taught international human rights law at George Mason University's Law School as an adjunct professor. Please join me in welcoming Emily Gao. Emily? Thank you, John. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. <clears throat> Today's topic, radicalization of children. These are three words that should never go together. But in our modern age of terror, we see that groups like Boko Haram, ISIS, and the Taliban are increasingly using children as young as four years old to launch attacks in Syria and Iraq, Nigeria and Indonesia, as well as in Austria, France, and Germany. Worldwide, these terror groups have abducted, recruited, co-opted, and in some cases persuaded parents to enlist their children in terrorism. In some cases, terrorists have forced children to commit acts of terror under threat of torture and rape. In Nigeria, Boko Haram kidnapped women and girls, and now they make up the majority of their suicide bombers. One in five of these suicide bombers is a child. How should our societies, governments, and the international community treat children who have been radicalized and have committed acts of terror? Today's panelists will look at three dimensions of this growing trend. First, from a counterterrorism perspective, how should governments address the security threat that these children pose, not only to peace and security and human rights in foreign countries, but also in the homeland? How should the law treat them? As criminals? or as victims, or both. Second, what are the best approaches to de-radicalizing children and giving them a way back into society? Are governments and the international community coordinating the right actors? Are their strategies yielding positive results? Or could they even be increasing support for terror? Are experts, including theological perspectives, along with psychological and medical treatments for these children? as they are often told that it is a religious duty for them to commit acts of terror. Third, what is the best way to create the conditions in civil society and education for these children and youth to avoid being ensnared by the efforts of terror groups to recruit and radicalize them? These children should have been like their peers, going to school, playing games, playing sports, and being nurtured and cared for by their families. But instead, these terror groups have instrumentalized them, and in some cases, their parents have cooperated. Today's panelists will examine these questions revolving around criminal responsibility, de-radicalization and reintegration, and prevention. 
Robin Simcox is the Margaret Thatcher Fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. He specializes in counterterrorism and national security policy. Robin has testified before Congress on multiple occasions on issues related to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and associated movements. He has provided evidence to the British Parliament on intelligence policy. His commentary appears widely in newspapers, and he regularly appears on a variety of broadcast and cable news outlets. Robin was a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society in London, a foreign policy think tank. There he offered several important works, including Al-Qaeda in the United States, a 728-page monograph profiling every court conviction in America linked to Al-Qaeda. Robin received a Master of Science degree in U.S. Foreign Policy from the Institute for the Study of the Americas, University of London, and a Bachelor of Arts degree in International History from the University of Leeds. Jessica Trusco-Darden is an assistant professor at American University's School of International Service and associate director of Bridging the Gap. She is an inaugural Jean Kirkpatrick Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Her research focuses on international influences on interstate conflict and political violence, particularly within Asia. Dr. Trisco Darden is also the lead investigator for the Women in Combat Roles Project that examines female participation in national militaries. She has published peer-reviewed articles on alliance dynamics, political violence, and human security. Her commentary is also widely disseminated through print and broadcast media. And Tina Ramirez is the president and the founder of Hardwired, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing religious freedom in law and policy worldwide. She is currently on the board of the Richmond-based First Freedom Center. She previously worked as International and Government Relations Director at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and as a foreign policy advisor and expert on international religious freedom for a variety of members of Congress. There, she helped found and direct the Congressional International Religious Freedom Caucus, where she drafted several pieces of legislation to protect religious freedom around the world. She was also a contributing author and editor of Human Rights in the United States, a dictionary and documents. Would you please join me in welcoming our speakers? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Emily. Thank you all for, for being here. Uh, I'm just going to spend a bit of time focusing on how uh, Europe has framed uh, and is responding to the issue of, of young people becoming attracted to, to Islamist ideology. Um, for some years now, European governments have um, paid particular attention to foreign fighters uh, returning to their countries of origin, particularly as ISIS is squeezed in Syria and Iraq, loses territory, and people begin to uh, flee. What to do with the children that accompany the returnees, though, has received much less focus, not just from government, although perhaps that's beginning to change, but also, I think, from the think tank and the academic community more broadly. If you try and assess the numbers, uh, the precise number of children who could be arriving into Europe from what was formerly ISIS territory uh, is unclear for a variety of reasons. Proving nationality is not going to be straightforward. Identification papers could be lost or only have ever been issued by ISIS, and so understandably not recognized by other European countries. Proving paternity of some of these children is not going to be easy in some cases, especially the children of those women who've been raped by ISIS fighters. Despite some of those complexities, um, some European governments are at least somewhat cognizant of the scale of the problem, though. Um, so the precise numbers are unclear, but it's certainly a case of mid to high hundreds of children that we're potentially dealing with here rather than kind of like the low dozens. So in France, for example, there's around 460 children who were in ISIS-controlled territory. Around a third of those were born in Syria or Iraq. Uh, at the end of 2016, uh, the Dutch were aware of around 80 children with some kind of connection and there's also uh, believed to be American and, and British children still in the, the Syria Iraq theater. So, it, it, I mean, it should be self-evident, I think, why this is such a big problem. But it is worth spelling out that ISIS has undoubtedly exposed these children uh, to their ideology. 
Europol warned last year that ISIS propaganda repeatedly depicted the training and indoctrination of minors. A report from the British counter-extremes and think tank Quilliam outlined how children attend jihadist training, which includes shooting, weaponry and martial arts. Children are told that refusing to kill what ISIS call infidels will damn them and also their family to an eternity in hell. ISIS maths textbooks teach children to tell the time by using images of clocks attached to dynamite and use pictures of guns, tanks and bullets to teach basic arithmetic. I think this at least partially explains why multiple videos have emerged of children brutally executing detainees in ISIS-controlled areas and why ISIS was able to deploy so many children in military operations in Iraq and Syria. The idea that hundreds of brainwashed Western children will be returning to Europe is clearly a major security headache and threatens to be one for some decades to come. So as I, as I alluded to earlier, I think governments are increasingly alive to this threat now. The Global Counterterrorism Forum, an initiative led by the UK and the Netherlands, has held three meetings on addressing the challenge of returning families over the past year. Um, a document summarizes some of those discussions and the policies that should flow from it. Um, will likely emerge towards the end of the year. And when you kind of, when I, you're trying to think of well, what, what is this likely to say, um, it, it's, it's hard because there's hardly an established playbook for how democracies should respond to this issue. It's a very unique challenge. And so while there are options and a host of options for things that could be done, I think they all come attached with various dilemmas. So to, Take one, um, prosecution. ISIS propaganda shows that some of these children have committed murder. A 13-year-old Brit was filmed executing a Kurdish prisoner, for example. So in such cases, domestic prosecutors may consider it in the public interest to bring charges and detain children who still pose a risk and, and potentially place them in juvenile detention. Yet country by country, the age of criminal responsibility differs. So in Germany, for example, it's 14. In Belgium, it's 12. The UK is 10. So that 13-year-old British or Belgian child could potentially be prosecuted for committing that act. Um, a German who committed a comparable crime couldn't. Another option is to allow the state to take children away from ISIS sympathetic parents and, and place them into care. I think this is quite self-evidently necessary at times. However, it's also true that just the process of putting them in care in of itself doesn't guarantee these children stop posing a threat. Ahmed Hassan, the, the young Iraqi refugee who carried out uh, a bombing on the tube in southwest London last September, he lived with, with British foster parents after his, uh, after his natural parents were killed in Iraq. It didn't serve as a firewall in his case, and there's no guarantee that it would be different for other children and teens in the future. I think the case of Hassan also demonstrates that for the older child returnees, monitoring by security services is going to be a potential option. But again, surveillance presents a significant resourcing challenge. Many intelligence agencies are already way overstretched. The UK, for example, has 23,000 uh, Islamist terror suspects on its radar. So the imperfection of all those options leads me to another entirely imperfect option, which is uh, CVE, or I guess the artist formerly known as CVE these days, um, and de-radicalization initiatives. European governments have made uneven progress in establishing these programs, and they're experimental. We know they don't always succeed. But this process of involving social workers, psychologists, youth offender services, child protection agencies to try and have some kind of interaction with these children is, I'm a little depressed to say, probably about as good an option as there is on the table at the moment. Um, as, as the French Minister for Armed Forces said recently when discussing this challenge, the challenge is for us to return to turn these people into citizens again. What other option really is there for those like the four-year-old British child who ISIS made blow up a car full of its prisoners? It's also just worth clarifying that this is a conversation that would be taking place regardless of child returnees. Children are being radicalized in the West too. Western teens and preteens have carried out dozens of plots. 
for example, in November 2016, there was a 12-year-old German Iraqi who attempted multiple bombings in southwest Germany. The UK government has identified an intimidatingly large number of 2,127 children under the age of 15 alone that it worries about as potential extremists. So these conversations around de-radicalization of young people would be happening uh, even without those returning from Syria and Iraq. It's also worth pointing out that demonstrating to these children the dangers of this ideology is, is not impossible. Uh, it's, a, it's just one case, but the Home Office in the UK has, has provided details recently of a, uh, a nine-year-old who stood up in class and pledged his support for ISIS. He was referred to the UK government's de-radicalization scheme, and, and he seems to be one of the success stories. He's recanted his views for the time being. So we know these schemes have mixed success, to put it politely, and we all know that they're not the most effective part of the toolkit we have in facing down the security threat, or at least, at least I, I would suggest not. Um, there's also going to be those, and I think this is e equally valid, uncomfortable with the state so firmly involving itself in the realm of decreeing which ideas are and are not acceptable. After all, most of these children haven't committed an act of violence, though have just been unfortunate enough to have been indoctrinated with an extreme ideology. As I say, no option outlined here is perfect or even necessarily desirable. Yet I think the most undesirable option is for us to do nothing at all. Ignoring the fact that ISIS has indoctrinated these children uh, is a non-starter. I think ignoring it only means we increase the likelihood of these child returnees becoming the next generation of Islamist insurgents, which is why a mix of the options I outlined above are probably likely going to be the go-to for European governments in the years to come. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today uh, to discuss this very important issue. So my research generally focuses on international development programs to counter violent extremism and to prevent terrorism. Uh, I focus specifically on U.S. government-funded programs that take place in the developing world. So the range of countries that my work touches upon is quite diverse, ranging from Mali, Nigeria, Niger, Burkina Faso to, for example, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, but also European countries like Kosovo. They're all dealing with this shared problem set of how to prevent young people from turning towards violence to give them new opportunities, educational opportunities, economic opportunities, social opportunities that make terrorism less attractive as an option. I think that a lot of the work that's being done by agencies like um, the United States Agency for International Development is good work, and, it, and it's motivated by important principles. But in my work, I've really assessed these programs with a critical eye. So about a week ago, uh, I published an article in the online magazine War on the Rocks that raises some of the kind of ethical and practical challenges of these programs. I would encourage all of you to look at that. I discuss findings um, by NGOs, including Mercy Corps, as well as USAID programs that suggest that some of our efforts to tackle this problem abroad are actually increasing support for violent extremism amongst youth. Uh, and I think we need to be seriously addressing the risks of the strategies that we've adopted and proactively finding ways to mitigate and respond to those challenges. So turning to the problem at hand today of uh, Islamist ideology and youth radicalization, I think it's very important to remember that radicalization is not necessarily a precondition for participating in a violent extremist organization, right? That is one pathway into violence and violence, violent extremism, but it is not the only pathway and it is not necessary as a precondition. When we look at youth that have participated in groups like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab in particular, youth, both male and female, often uh, express that economic motivations played a contributing role. This can be as simple as, you know, I couldn't pay my school fees, 
so I didn't have anywhere to go. And that started a chain that led to their eventual recruitment into these groups. But forced recruitment has also played a very important role. So we've seen widespread kidnapping used as a tactic by Boko Haram. We've seen many uh, young women in particular trafficked from Kenya into Somalia to join al-Shabaab. Um, and we've seen other means of forced coercion that have occurred, um, including parents or other family members responsible for youth who have coerced or pressured them into joining these groups. That being said, we know much more about young people's pathways into violent extremist organizations than we know about their pathways out of them. Uh, and many times this is because individuals who have managed to escape from these groups are concerned about retribution by the groups that they will essentially be hunted down, um, but also because of the high stigmatization that comes with having been associated with or participated in violent extremism. And I think that this is a key area that our programming and our efforts need to focus on, um, destigmatizing participation so we can learn more about pathways into and out of these groups. I also think that when we're discussing kind of youth or children and violent extremism, we're actually discussing several different categories of young people. So we have, as mentioned, um, children, orphans, uh, whose parents have actively participated in combat, uh, and they've been orphaned as a result of developments that have taken place on the battlefield, um, versus children who are returning, right? They're, they're in very different structural positions, uh, and this enables the state to deal with them in a different manner. We also, as I mentioned, have individuals who were forced, uh, into these groups versus those who voluntarily participated. But we also have those who participated as active combatants, right, as fighters versus those who are kind of more generally in a radicalized or violent extremist environment. And I think that we need to be um, very mindful of that fact and think about how we can tailor our programs, our social programming uh, to address this important difference. We also need to be cognizant of the fact that, as with everything these days, right, social networks played a very important role in bringing young people into these groups, and that social networks will play a very important role in uh, their de-radicalization and also insulating them um, from recidivism or from returning uh, to these sort of activities. So, for example, a recent United Nations development report surveyed 500 uh, former extremist fighters in Africa, and they found that more than half of the individuals that they spoke with had been recruited into a violent extremist organization by a friend. We know that friendship networks play a very important role in either bringing individuals into violent extremism or insulating them from it. 8% of those surveyed by the UNDP were, were recruited into violent extremist groups by a family member. So the issue of what do we do with radicalization within the family, how we address that, I think should be at the forefront of our agenda moving forward. Looking to Europe, de-radicalization programs have had some success. Often you'll hear um, about the Our House program in Denmark, some programs in France that have shown success. From my perspective as someone who looks at this issue in developing countries, there are lots of questions that I have, right? How should this content be altered for young people? When where and how should these de-radicalization programs take place, right? Should they occur in the school? Should they occur at home? Should they occur in residential programs? The Nigerian government has adopted the residential approach. It has um, separated women who have escaped from Boko Haram and placed them in residential schools where they're cut off from their home communities, from their families and often from the children that they had while they were part of the group. Uh, and I think this is the wrong approach. It doesn't deal with the stigmatization 
of women who in many instances were forcibly uh, recruited into these groups. But it also doesn't help repair and rebuild the social fabric to ensure that these women's reintegration uh, into society will be successful. At the end of the day, the financial requirements of these programs, which is something that we can speak about more in depth, make them unattainable for many developing countries. Um, and so we need to be thinking not just to successful European models, but to other models that we know that the international community has used with varying degrees of success. So in my work, I've really looked at how the lessons of child soldiering, for example, and the demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration processes that we did, for example, in Sierra Leone uh, and other countries can be adapted to deal with this new problem set. Uh, one of the last questions that I would raise really focuses on gender because much of the development programming that has occurred, even though it's been sensitive uh, to the needs of girls, has really focused on young men aged 15 to 25 as being the highest risk group for violent extremism. But this has meant that, for example, youth leadership uh, programs that have occurred in Burkina Faso had one female participant out of 10. And that's not dealing with the reality that girls and young women are being actively used and are actively part of violent extremist organizations. Uh, young girls also have very different vulnerabilities than young men, and we need to be open about this. Uh, this includes early marriages and forced marriages in many of the countries that I study. It also includes trafficking by family members um, and exposure to sexual violence. And I think that these are difficult issues to talk about, but that we need to consider um, the unique position that many young girls are in. Um, sexual violence has also occurred against uh, young boys and men, and I think that's important to note as well. So my general kind of recommendations for how we need to move forward on this issue is that we need clearer criteria for identifying and targeting at-risk youth in our programming. We know that it's not all young men aged 15 to 25. We know that it's actually a very small proportion of young people that are going to engage um, in violent extremism or be radicalized, and we need to do a better job of finding those people before it happens. We also need to engage families more and better understand how family structures can contribute to radicalization. So a few years ago, USAID um, and other groups undertook studies comparing recruitment into gangs with recruitment into violent extremist organizations. And that early research suggested that family structures didn't really play a big role in violent extremism. Um, yet in the years since, narratives that have come out of Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram have really demonstrated that family structure played a key role in vulnerabilities. So, uh, for example, female-headed households right, were more likely to be susceptible to economic pressure right? To have uh, young men who didn't have a good role model or father figure who were more susceptible to recruitment into these groups. So family structure can play uh, a very important role. I would also point out that there are some easily identifiable solutions, right? When we look to some of these factors, providing more support for education, Right? providing more support to female-headed head, female headed households to reduce some of these vulnerabilities. So they take us out of the realm of kind of de-radicalization programming and more into kind of more general international development efforts. But I think that these traditional efforts have a very important role to play as well. Thank you very much, Tina. All right. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to see all of you out there. I hope you're awake. Right? Got it. Good. Um, clearly, religious extremism is a problem in the world. I don't think we can turn on the news and not see it around us every day, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, from what we're hearing, the problem is what do we actually do to change it? Um, children are particularly vulnerable. And I say the word vulnerable because um, I don't – children haven't fully developed. And um, – it's not their intent to grow up and be an extremist or a terrorist. 
right? They're still children. They're vulnerable. And so what do we do to address that vulnerability? Um, if we don't do something, as Robin suggested, you know, the reality is that these children that have been radicalized across the Middle East and in our midst um, will grow up to act upon that. Um, and I just want to add that when we're talking about this topic, um, 900 of the children that were radicalized by ISIS in Iraq were Yazidi children. So these are not Muslims. These are Yazidis that have been um, brainwashed into a terrorist organization and have lost their sense of identity. So, um, and we see these problems in Hindu communities in India and um, in many different communities around the world. So this is not something uh, that's um, that it, other communities are immune from. And schools, in my opinion, are really on the front line in addressing this issue um, because if uh, children are the most vulnerable to being radicalized, then uh, the only place that they come together often in communities where they're isolated from one another is the school. But in the schools, teachers aren't prepared to deal with this. Religion is one of those things that you simply don't talk about in the parts of the world that, that extremism is at its worst, in the Middle East, North Africa in particular. So um, I want to share four things today. One, what's being done about this issue of the radicalization of youth? Um, what are the limitations of things that are being done? What is Hardwired's approach to this? And what is the impact that we've seen? So four different focuses. And I want to start by bringing it home with a story. I'm from California, and I was in San Diego last summer and was sharing the work that we're doing with with uh, the superintendent of an entire school district in San Diego. The school district, 50% of their population are refugees, mostly from Iraq. And he said, well, Tina, we see these issues here. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, on the playground, um, these kids got in a fight, and I heard about it. And one kid, they were both refugee kids, but one said, well, when he felt threatened, he said, well, I'm ISIS, and I'm going to attack you. He said, but we've seen it in the lunchroom with kids that won't eat certain foods prepared by people they think are infidels. He said, we see it all over the place. I said, okay. And then um, in Iraq, when I was there, a teacher that we've been working with um, in Erbil, where it's been, it hasn't, it wasn't under, overtaken by ISIS, uh, shared a story with me where she had come to our training and she said, well, I've seen this too. And, and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, on a playground at my school, um, with kids that never experienced ISIS, there were a group of kids that were playing a game. And as she went closer, she was just shocked to see what they were doing. And she said um, they were holding another child down and they were beheading him. They were pretending. They were playing. They were being ISIS. Why would children do that? It's because children are particularly influenced by this superhero idea. And at the time, in their mind, that's who it was. You know, we might play cowboys and Indians and think it's fun and games here in America, but who wants to be the Indian? Now, the sad thing is they lost. And so for these children in Iraq, they're beginning to associate and identify with a terrorist group, not because they want to or they think that they really are the hero, but because that's 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 what is perceived in their in their minds at the time. And so how do we help children not just the ones that have been indoctrinated by ISIS directly, whether they're in Mosul or other areas or Boko Haram or other parts of the world, but ones that are just indirectly being influenced by these ideas outside of the epicenter of where ISIS controlled in San Diego, California, or in London, or in Germany. How do we help those children? So currently what's being done um, is that governments across the Middle East recognize that this is a problem. Uh, you know, none of them are are having conversations where they're wondering, you know, do we have an extremism problem? They get it. We have a problem. What do we do about it? And um, what they've done so far is they've addressed, they've tried to focus on curriculum reform. So many of them have said we need to identify the negative texts within our, um, in, within our, um, religious education books or in our curriculum, and we need to reform them. We need to remove them. And those um, that's been going on in places like Lebanon and Iraq and Egypt and Tunisia, a number of countries across the Middle East. The problem with that is that curriculum reform doesn't change the way people think. And even probably more importantly in the Middle East right now, um, the parents and the political opponents 
of the government right now are opposed to it. They, they, what they say is that we do not like these reforms because you're taking away our religious identity. You're threatening us. And so, um, Parents are afraid that their children will lose their religious identity. And so, uh, like in Jordan, when they tried to, to implement these curriculum reforms, they just, they got, um, just trounced on. Like it was just insane what happened. They didn't, they weren't able to implement any of them. So now they're going back to square one and trying to look at, okay, how do we actually do this? But at the core of it, the problem is you can change a textbook, but you can't, that's not going to change the way people think, in particular because teachers still don't know how to teach any differently than what they've been taught. And when you're working in societies where every generation, all they've ever seen has been religious intolerance, hate, killings, and imagine these kids that we're talking about that are 14, 15, 16, that's all they've ever known. So how do you, how do you retrain them to think differently? So there are major limitations. What Hardwired did in the last um, two years, or actually even more than that, probably three or four years, we um, we after ISIS had come into Iraq, I'd been working on the issue with uh, Congress before I started Hardwired, and so a lot of the groups came to me and said, "Help!" These were these were people from all different religious communities that we'd worked with, and so we. Um, we did a training with civil society leaders to establish the first leaders in Iraq that were actually standing together across religious divides to defend the <clears throat> the rights and freedom of one another, people of diverse faiths. Um, just as an example of why that's so important, a, a Sunni Muslim judge from Mosul who had escaped and his family remained in Mosul um, that attended our trainings uh, decided after help after working with us and being trained to go and help the Yazidi and the Christian communities access justice in the courts. He's in line to be on the Supreme Court in Baghdad. And we said to him, you know, why are you doing this? And he showed us this image on his cell phone of his youngest brother, 17 years old, being beheaded by ISIS. And he said, if I don't stand up for the justice of the people that are different from me, this is the reality that waits every one of us. Now, that's the same reality that these teachers and the um, children that we're working with are beginning to understand. So in that group of of civil society leaders that we trained, we included teachers from Iraq. And um, two of them designed this lesson that we call the Peaceful Garden Project. And it's on our website if you want to look at it more. But they decided to to train their their children to begin to, to think differently about um, one another. And they took all their students to a garden and they said, choose any flower you want except for this one of one color. And so the students did and they came together. And then when the teacher said, now look back at the garden and see what you've done. And they looked back and they realized they decimated the garden. They destroyed it. And the teacher said, this is what's happened in our country in Iraq because of ISIS. They've destroyed everyone except for the people who look like them. And they said, you can remain this way and live in fear of one another, or you can help us plant the seeds of peace and freedom that will help us rebuild our society and live together. And for the first time, these children, after going through this, a series of lessons and working together, began to overfear, overcome their fear, their misconception, their bias towards one another, so that they were able to essentially recondition the way that they, they thought of one another, the way they see one another, and come to a place where they actually had the hope of living together in peace for once in their life that they had never experienced before. This was the power of what was possible through education in Iraq. So the British government was very encouraged by this and wanted us to share it. So in the last two years, um, Hardwired took this um, this teacher training program to three countries in the Middle East that invited us to work in their country, training their teachers and implementing lessons on um, freedom of religion and belief, um, pluralism, inclusion in the classroom. So we worked with about 56 teachers in three countries and in total, we reached 1,200 students. So as a result of these, the teachers developed, they were trained, um, they went through a transformation of their own mindset, they addressed their own fears and misconceptions of others, and then they were taught how to actually develop the curriculum. Sorry, And the curriculum that they developed was very similar to the Peaceful Garden Project, but every country and every teacher was different. They had um, very different analogies they used across the board for how to, how to translate these concepts of human dignity and equality and non-discrimination into the culture. Um, but they did it, and then they all used the Peaceful Garden lesson as well. So we were able to to look at um, and assess what the change and the impact on the way children 
perceived one another and how they actually responded in their communities. And so let me just give you a few of the um, of the data points on what we found. And I think um, just going to what Jessica was saying, you know, the most important thing that came out of the study that will be released in the next couple of weeks, so you can take a look on our website for it, um, is that of these 1,200 children, the greatest change that they had was actually in their view of women. We didn't expect that, but we tested for it because we wanted to see um, a number of things that would be affected. So um, um, let me just go through. So 100% of the children who supported of um, 75% of the children who held negative views of others when we started were willing to defend them by the end. Uh, just one example of this, a student who went through the course in Lebanon, which has, you know, very bifurcated along religious lines. Um, there was a, a, it was a Christian school and there was a, a Muslim refugee community from Syria nearby. And the students, they were going to celebrate what they had learned with the teacher. They were having a party and they said, you know, teacher, we think we need to invite these refugees because we understand now that this isn't just for us, that if we really believe this, it's for them too. And in the past, um, when we started with the Lebanese, they thought to be separate was equal. Because they said, look, as long as we're in these separate, isolated communities, we're all free, we're equal. But what they realized by the end is that it, that's not exactly the highest standard of freedom in a society. The highest standard is when you can actually actively engage with another person, not be afraid of them, and learn how to interact and respect their freedom, even when you disagree with them. And so being able to transform their minds to that just through a few simple lessons was radical transformation. Um, 50% of the children who would have reacted with violence when we started the program were were not violent by the end. That's huge. Um, 100% of the children who had excluded minority groups um, from positions of leadership or other things in the school beforehand became inclusive of them by the end. 60% of the ch children who were willing to discriminate against girls were actually willing to support them by the end. And um, when we did a second lesson with students, set, students were 78% more likely to support and defend others. So we saw this radical transformation. Essentially what we saw is that you can de-radicalize children. You can create resiliency in children so that they're not vulnerable to the ideas of hate and intolerance that foment this violent extremism in their communities. And if you can do that, if you can create the resiliency and in these communities, not just with an individual, but with an individual that impacts the wider community, you actually can begin to see progress. But because this was done in three countries with 1,200 students, the data is pretty sub is is highly significant when you look at it statistically. And so now the Kurdish government has invited us to do this with all of the students, 1.8 million kids in their area and another 600,000 in Mosul. And in um, Jordan and in Saudi Arabia, there are people that are interested in this as well. So it's it's um, a great example of what's possible, what can be scaled to actually begin to have an impact on children uh, in these regions or children in, in our own country that are being vulnerable to extremist ideas. Thank you. Thanks, Tina. What were the three countries that you started with? It was Morocco, Iraq, and Lebanon. Yeah. Okay, now we have time for questions and answers. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, please identify yourself and then ask your question. Yes, ma'am. Over often democracy is, is there. And we're not only talking about it, but we need that we're just being 
Ma'am, do you have do you have a question? Okay. So in yeah, so to answer no, this is I mean of course, you know, children what you're talking about is an ideology and um there are religious ideas that are bad. You know? I mean, I think we can all we can all look at that. I look at, you know, the idea of suti in India and and the foot binding of children or I mean, these are things that yes, we can look throughout history. There are a lot of bad ideas. We enslaved black people in America, and we justified it based on religion at one point in our history. I have a biracial daughter, so I'm personally, like, very, you know, I understand what you're saying. But in the training that we do, the reason that it's so dynamic is we take children who are influenced by a variety of ideas that might be extreme, and we help them deconstruct these ideas. And at the core of what we want them to understand is human dignity, because at the core of who are you and I and my daughter and everybody else in the world are is we're human beings first. And if we can't get to that point, then we can't get people to a point where they can begin to challenge the ideas of intolerance and hate no matter where they're coming from. And so that's what we're doing. And Hardwired's able to do it with a very unique methodology called conceptual change. So the pedagogy, I'm happy to share more with you um, later, but it's a very unique pedagogy. I mean, you know, extremists radicalize children in a very certain way. Um, and you can de-radicalize them. You can retrain people to think. Uh, and it's when you understand the science of learning that you can do that. And that's what we do. But we do it based on helping people understand these key concepts of human dignity, equality, um, and freedom so that people are able to be resilient to those ideas wherever they're coming from and uh, think critically about ways to challenge them. And only in a free society where we have the freedom for everybody, regardless of crazy ideas or good ideas, to express themselves do we have the freedom to challenge those bad ideas and uh, have a marketplace where people can actually uh, be free? So, thank you. Thanks for addressing that, Tina. I have a follow-up question, which is uh, which is actually for all three of you. Do you find that there are religious leaders within Islam or within other religions who are supportive of your work on religious freedom? What do you uh, yeah, I mean, the the judge that I mentioned in Iraq, uh, I mean, we've worked with people of all different faith communities, and um, mo- I mean, the majority of people of faith are not extremists, they're not terrorists, they're not radicalized, they're people like you and I that care about their family, um, their economic well-being. So yes, we do, um, and it, it's um, I think it's encouraging when you see a country like Iraq where they've gone through genocide. They've had, you know, I mean, different communities attacking one another for generations. And when you can see them come together in a way, when we first started working with the, the um, Yazidi and the Baha'i and the um, even an atheist and um, Sunni, Shia, Muslim, and the Orthodox and the, the, the Catholic and all the different communities in Iraq, um, the Shabak and the Turkmen and et cetera, they hated one another. They didn't trust one another. They came in the room and they sat with some of you out there that are like, I don't buy what you're saying. Okay. But by the end, after a good year to two years of working with them, their questions weren't about attacking one another. Their questions were, why aren't you helping me more? And I think that's the power of um, bringing those people together to understand, like the judge did, that this is the reality like the photo of his brother. This is the fate that awaits all of us if we don't learn how to get along. And I I, um, I think that that's an encouraging example. We've seen it in Sudan, and we've seen it in uh, Nigeria as well. So, um, Any other questions? I believe we have a microphone that will come to you if you want to ask your question. Uh, Christian Misloik from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, question for Dr. Darden. So you mentioned that some of the programs that you looked at that were meant to uh, reduce violence uh, in, in developing countries actually increased it. So what was causing the unintended uh, unintended uh, action? Absolutely. So I think uh, programs like Tina, the work that she's doing with Hardwire, it's very interesting because they really work from the bottom up, right? They've found that teachers are a critical intervention point and they provide support and training. But ultimately, it's those teachers that are, are disseminating that message, right? They're, in, they're engaging with their own culture, with their own students, what they know 
to be effective and appropriate for their environment. And I think that is a really great example of how these sorts of interventions can be done. I think what has been uh, common in some of our approaches is to take well-worn development ideas and say, okay, how can we adapt this for violent extremism, right? So, um, you know, there are disaffected young men out there. Maybe they have economic or other motivations to join violent extremist groups. Maybe they just don't have enough to do. So let's try and use development programming that was initially intended um, to say build build job opportunities and promote economic growth and see what impact that has on violent extremism. Um, and so there have been several experiments that have been done that have essentially showed that some combinations of interventions work. So, for example, uh, an experiment uh, done by some researchers at Yale and Princeton, um, supported in part by Mercy Corps and the U.S. Institute of Peace, basically tried out a di- three different types of programming on Afghan uh, youth. Job training, job training plus, ca- plus cash transfers, so $75 mobile cash transfer that was unconditional uh, and just cash transfers. And then, of course, a, a group was held as a, a control group. And so what those researchers found was that the combination of vocational training basically had no effect on whether you were more supportive of the Afghan government or the Taliban. It was a wash, right? The combination of vocational training and a $75 cash transfer made you more likely to support the Afghan government. But just receiving the $75 cash transfer, it initially made you like the Afghan government a bit more. But seven to nine months later, you were actually more supportive of the Taliban. You were more willing to materially support them. The questions they asked uh, included, you know, would you be likely to uh, shelter an Afghan or uh, Taliban fighter in your home? Would you be more willing to send out a text message supporting the Taliban to your relatives? A, a range of questions um, were asked. And essentially, the researchers hypothesized that this kind of influx of cash, which in the uh, local context in Kandahar was a significant amount of money, It initially kind of raised expectations like, oh, great, you know, our situation is improving. But once that cash was used, that effect rapidly dissipated and people became more aware of uh, the limited opportunities that they actually had. And so I think that's why we need a lot of local knowledge and context to the programming that we do do. But also we need to acknowledge that there aren't going to be quick fixes. Yeah, it's cheap to just give someone $75 through a mobile phone transfer, right? That's not a solution to these underlying causes. Um, And so I think we need to be more cognizant of kind of the ethical implications of what we're doing. But also, you know, as the first question addressed these are kind of long-term generational challenges, right? We have youth that have grown up in an environment of war and conflict and their feelings, their attitudes, their experience of the world is not going to change overnight. Um, and so we need to be thinking about what we can do both in the short term and in the long term to change conditions. We have time for one more question. I believe gentleman over here. Uh, John Rosamondo, the Investigative Project on Terrorism. My question for uh, all of you is I'm thinking of the uh, Somali community in uh, Minnesota in particular. There have been about 50 or so uh, young people who have gone to uh, fight for al-Shabaab or ISIS in the past decade or so. And my own research has found uh, that uh, some of the mosques in the area promote the idea of, you know, us versus them, you know, the infidel and so forth. What can we do to intervene to, uh, you know, deal with some of the uh, ideological origins of some of the radicalization? Sure. Um, well, the, the first part of it is, is accepting there's an ideological dimension to this, which I think is self-evident, but probably isn't kind of received wisdom in, in every government. For example, I just came back from um, Finland uh, speaking to some government officials there, and they were kind of making the case to me that it was rapacious Finnish foreign policy that was driving people in that area to extremism. I mean, 
the last time Finland invaded Iraq, you'll have to remind me. Um, so, so the ideological dimension, I, I think, is, is clearly the case. How you then deal with that, I suppose, is the question. How do you present that in a way that is going to be effective? And I think it's probably going to change country by country. But, I mean, look, the UK, for example, puts ideology at the forefront of its counterterrorism strategy and its preventing violent extremism strategy. I think that's right. But the the key is getting buy-in, I think, from the people who are having to deliver that. So, for example, teachers, um, kind of dovetailing off, off, off a previous answer, it's the, some of the teachers who are having to raise awareness of potential problems of extremism with, with children in their classrooms. And there's been a big pushback from people who are concerned groups like CAGE and things like that, who say this is teachers spying on children. So I think it's a case of of making people understand that when teachers are looking out for signs of extremism, ideological extremism, they're doing it in the same way they're safeguarding children, just like they would be if they were concerned about their involvement in gangs or drugs or potential sexual exploitation, something like that. So I think we need to regard radicalization in that same uh, kind of ballpark. Yes, I'll just um, add to that. So it, one of the great criticisms of Obama's CBE policy, as I'm sure you know, was that um, it, for, it was from within the community. He was working with them, but then the community turned on him and they said, well, you're you're spying on us. You're getting us to spy. So there's this huge like tried to make it look good, but it really didn't end up – it ended up having a much – harsher reaction from the community than positive one because he kind of ended up using people as spies on their own community, which doesn't work. And you can't really go into the religious communities and ask them to change the way they teach or preach. I mean, we have, we have first amendment here that protects a lot of that, but what you can do is you can get into the schools. And so we've spoken with people, not, not in Minnesota, but in um, Detroit and Dearborn and in California that have large refugee populations. Um, and the reason these communities are important is because, you know, as Americans, religious freedom is part and parcel of who we are. It's, it's, you know, it's our First Amendment, and we don't even think about it most of the time. But for most cultures in the world, it's a foreign concept. It's not, you know, that it's not in their constitutions. It's not taught. It's not part of the fabric of their society. It doesn't mean they don't get along with people, but it just means it's not, it's not a value like we have it here in our country. And so, um, when people come here, they do need to be taught that this is a value that we have and why we have it. And so I think that um, it should be taught in schools. And we're meeting with the Department of Ed tomorrow to talk about this and about how can you um, take this this um, model that we've shown has worked in a very difficult situation and actually just through simple lessons be working um, in a way in American schools to teach children these concepts so that we have a society where everybody values these freedoms. We don't have the religious tensions that we see um, emerging or people being uh, being influenced by extremist ideas because it's definitely not something that we want to see, you know, happen more here. But in communities like the Somali community where they're very isolated, it's the education system is, I think, the only way to really get in. So, Are there any resources that any of you would like to point people to if they would like to learn more in addition to the websites of Hardwired, AEI, and Heritage? There's other websites out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll just say that So the report on um, protecting children from violent extremism will be released in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to just keep an eye out for that or if you sign up on our website, I can send that to you. Um, but it provides all the data on how it was done with the lessons and everything. So it'll give you a pretty good idea of how this can be replicated or influence other societies. And I'd just like to draw attention to that the question of kind of refugee populations and integration, it's not just a challenge for the West, right? It's a challenge for developing countries as well. And so a lot of the work um, that I've been doing recently has looked at the Rohingya population in Bangladesh and the risk of radicalization, not even necessarily amongst that population, but amongst Bangladeshis who are being uh, – who are seeing that the refugee population is receiving a lot of attention and a lot of support from the international community in ways that they aren't. Um, and so I think that this kind of dynamic can play itself out very differently in countries we've seen. Obviously, um, many countries in the Middle East host large Syrian refugee populations. And so 
it's certainly a factor um, at play in our discussions of religious radicalization, but it's not one that that's confined to the West. Well, thank you all for attending and for your questions, and please join me in thanking the panelists. <laughs>